You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome, or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Jerry Parker and me, Niels Kastoblasen, where each week we take the pulse of the global markets through the lens of a rules-based investor. Now, for those of you who are regular listeners, our conversations are intended for you to learn and grow as rules-based investors. And if you're new to the show, we hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity to check out the back catalog and listen to the past episodes that you may have missed. Like last week's episode with Mark, where we, amongst other things, discussed how to manage systemic risks as a trend follower, how to construct a portfolio using trend-following funds, and Mark also offered a new explanation as to why trend-following works, which I really liked. And also, I would encourage you to check out the Wednesday episode with author Andrew Smithers, where Kevin Coldine discussed Andrew's latest book, The Economics of the Stock Market, which, among other things, is about how we can achieve economic stability by using a different economic model when managing that. So if you missed any of those episodes, I invite you to go and check them out right after you finish today's episodes. Jerry, always fantastic to be with you. How are things, um, well, I should say how things where you are because it's not the usual place. That's right. I'm on a West Coast trip here to Portland for the first time and I've had a good time and nice place to visit. Uh, thankfully, I'm still on East Coast time because it's. I woke up very early this morning but my body was uh, not too alarmed by it. So, um, but anyways, it's fun to be out here. It's fun to see you again, and I'm looking forward to our chat today. Yeah, no, absolutely, me too. Now, I want to do the market wrap uh, slightly short because we have some great topics to uh, to discuss. Um, but I guess uh, you could say that the Fed should raise rates every day, based at least on this week's reaction. Equities moved up, bonds moved up, the U.S. dollar is down, and commodities. Are not up as much as you would think, so it really is a win-win week for Jay Powell. Now, you may think that Powell gave a risk asset, sort of the green light, to uh, if you just look at the uh, stock prices, but I don't think that was his intention. In fact, he pretty much said the opposite. He said something like, we'll be watching financial conditions to see if they are appropriately tight and, um, and, and if they are having the effect we would hope uh, that they are having. Um, so it's probably more accurate to say that the Fed uh, was perceived to be dovish because the market was up rather than saying that the market was up because the Fed was dovish. Anyways, I'm sure you can find lots of people who would argue that the FOMC statement was pretty hawkish. Uh, but then Powell started to answer a bunch of questions about weakening data at the press conference. And that, I think, created the narrative that the market was up because he talked about weakening data. In any event, speaking of data, I did notice before we press record today, uh, which is Friday, so the last trading day of the month, a little bit earlier than usual, that in the Eurozone area, the inflation came in at a new all-time high, at least for this uh, cycle, at 8.9%. So no need to be dovish if your name is Christine Lagarde. Um, I guess it goes to show why we are strong believers in not letting narrative and emotions uh, decide our rules-based investment strategy and just stick to following the market action without getting emotionally involved in the process. Now, I want to talk about trend following in a slightly different way today, Jerry, because it's month end 
Um, so even though we don't have the last couple of days worth of performance data, we don't even know how the month is going to finish completely, we have a pretty good idea that it's not going to go down as the, one of the greatest months of uh, trend-following performance. So in any event, and you also mentioned actually separately that uh, you uh, would like to talk about July's performance um, because it has some interesting uh, characteristics about it. So why don't we just add it all together and go through some of the events of the month, what's actually happened um, and uh, give people a little bit of a perspective on that. Now, for those who don't necessarily follow the markets um, like we do, just to give people maybe a a sort of a taste of uh, some of the market moves we've seen uh, so far this month uh, on a percentage basis, and then we get into how trend-following systems may have um, reacted to them. Um, but we had natural gas up 53% in July. And you think, well, that's a bit unusual because if I look at oil, uh, that was down, you know, 5 or 6% in the month. So some quite some dispersion in, in the energy sector. Um, of course, we had um, the equity markets that had been in a downtrend uh, so far and had a pretty lousy um, June. June. Um, we have the Nasdaq up 11% so far this month. So obviously very different to the um, to the trends we saw leading into July. Uh, and that goes for many of the equity markets so far. Uh, we have uh, bond markets, which were also trading uh, significantly down so far this year uh, going into July. Um, the 30-year bond is up about 3%. Uh, so that's also a significant rally uh, that we've seen. Uh, some of the currencies that were in a downtrend, like the yen, uh, that is now up for the month. Uh, not so much, but still. Um, and then we have some of the markets that moved to the downside, um, which had been moving higher. I guess commodities in particular had been moving higher going into July. Uh, but now we see a lot of the grains down 5 or 6%, up up down 9% in the energy space. Um, and you have something like lumber, 15% uh, down, et cetera, et cetera. So quite a lot of interesting market moves, many of them against the uh, longer term trends. So why don't you give me, why don't you share some of the perspectives, some of the takeaways um, that you've had in uh, when you look at July, uh, Jerry? So much to talk about. Uh, such a bad performance for the classic long-term trend following. The worst. Uh We've just had a charmed period since, for me, the fall of 2020. Every month, almost as positive. Keep making more and more money. Um, I had a great 2020, great 2021. And up until July, I had a bad year this month. So, uh, But it's basically these, uh, we extol the virtues of loose pants and let your profits run. And nothing did worse this month than loose pants and letting profits run. Fall management crushed it. I think not only did I have a, am I going to post a bad number? Relative speaking, relatively speaking, it's going to be worse because uh, fall management <clears throat> really shined, reducing uh, these very volatile trades uh, as the volatility got kind of crazy, really helped with uh, these retracements against the major trends. Um, but the long-term systems, you know, they, they test out well. I've I've, I've used them for uh, almost my entire career. I love them. They're wonderful. They promise to make money, uh, good money, the best money over a long period of time. They make no promise to make my life easy. 
And for me, not to, you know, you said we don't get emotional about determining our systems or following the systems, but I definitely get emotional about July. It's just like, when is this going to end? Certainly, the bonds are not going to rally every single day. But no, last week was bad. I said it in spaces, and maybe this week was even worse. So I don't know if it's uh, what's going to happen, but um, certainly all of the ideas that I've espoused on this podcast that uh, work in the long run, that I love in the long run, really, really poor this month. And um, it's easy to say, let your profits run. Don't let clients influence you. Uh, Don't cut those profits short. It's all about Kager and maximizing the outliers. And then you get hit with July and you're like, wait a second. (laughs) I kind of, uh, maybe I should uh, look at what Rob does. You know the answer to that. It's never. That's a total joke. You know that. <laughs> I knew. I knew that. But it's. I'm glad you sort of made that clear for everyone else listening out there. But of course, as you rightly say, I mean, this is um, this is part of the price we pay for having you know these very long term uh, systems, where obviously there can be some some give back from time to time, especially when you have so many trends. I don't know if we should say they have reversed or whether they are correcting. I, I don't know. Maybe some of them have reversed, some of them are correcting. Um, and, and that's fine. And as you say, it tests well over time. And, you know, um, they outperformed uh, very recently and 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 now maybe they're coming back more in line. Who, who knows? It doesn't really mean, uh, um, it doesn't really matter because it shows how trend following can be implemented uh, using um, different methodologies. But why don't we break it down a little bit? Maybe you can talk about sort of what are the sectors where you've actually seen uh, the most give back, if I can call it that, but also have some of these corrections actually turned into reversals or, or maybe just being stopped out and then you kind of neutral in some of these things? Because I guess, I guess it goes to to show about, you know, what if these trends are coming back? I mean, a lot of people, interestingly enough, we just had the FOMC meeting as we talked about earlier. And I think a lot of people are suddenly saying, well, inflation is going to peak, it's going to go down, and uh, commodities are not going to be a problem anymore. I don't see it that way. I mean, I think this isn't just a normal, healthy correction uh, in something that could last for many years and and go a lot higher. So it is, of course, interesting to see how various systems um, deal with that and which markets or which sectors have flipped uh, direction uh, doing these. Because I mentioned net gas was up 53% this month, but what I didn't mention was it was probably down about 50% from its recent high going into July. So there's been some massive volatility in some of these markets. And I think overall, I mean, there's always going to be differences from one manager to another. We understand that. But overall, I think actually uh, the industry has handled uh, this level of volatility you know, pretty well when I look at the, the indices, so to speak. Oh, I agree. And that's the point I was making is that Deval management, which is predominantly the way that people manage volatility is to reduce positions when vol is high and reduce or increase them when it's low during the trade. That is predominantly what's done. It's just a few of us who don't do that. That I think is holding in pretty well. The difference between the two is going to be big this month. Um, but it started with the with the commodities and a give back in the LME metals. But it was um, it was masked by, oh, we were making money in the other sectors. So we had nice gift backs. 
in May or June in uh, LME metals, but um, maybe the other the other commodities made up for it. Certainly, the dollar and the interest rate shorts they certainly made up for it. But then all they started reversing. So um, we had this violent increase uh, rally in the bonds, which I'm sure every bond under the sun and a few fixed income ETFs and with no longs. And it's just one big, huge position. And so that was really a major problem, uh, you know, the, with these bonds rallying. And I, I get to thinking, you know, that uh, how incredulous I thought um, the stock rally in 2020 was after COVID hit and the stocks just crashed. And you're thinking, there's no way stocks are going to do a complete V bottom and go right back to the highs, right? And of course, we can handle it, not particularly well, but it's exactly what happened. And I'm thinking, there's no way these bonds, <laughs> because we know the fundamentals are inflation, uh, they've got to raise rates, and um, they've, we've got to have some pain and recession to pay for the sins of too much money supply and supply chain and all the reasons that are making prices go up. Maybe not. Maybe we're still in that Fed can rescue us or we rescue ourselves through this amazing capitalist economy of uh, Asia, Western Europe, and, the, and America. So it is really baffling to wake up every day and see, uh, okay, I'm going to hold on to these positions because certainly it's still a downtrend, even if you're ball managing and trimming a bit. But it really gets old and really frustrating after a while. Yeah, and so some of the other markets that um... – I'm looking at, you know, the soybeans and the corn. I still have those long positions. They seem to be going back up, at least uh, yesterday and the day before. So maybe that'll work out for me. I was a little embarrassed listening to Mark last week, you and Mark talk, where Mark is like um, something like, uh, well, everyone knows that the wheat is in a downtrend. And I was like, oh, no. Oh, God. I'm still <laughs> long wheat. And it's such a bummer because – I got out of some, and it looks like it might rally from these lows as well, because I guess it's hot in the Midwest or something. So, yeah, it's just really a bummer. This stuff just doesn't work. But, you know, funny, you bring up Nat Gas. I'm still long Nat Gas. I have my original position. So this is what happens when you have these loose stops, uh, these markets that go skyrocketing, crash, go right back up. You maintain the current position. Maybe that will make up for some of these problems. So you just don't know like how it's all going to work out individually. Uh, I've said many times that my strategy has makes no pretense on handling the current trades in a good way. It sucks. I mean, it just looks so horrible. Um, however, over the test period, it works out. And so I think that's one of the lessons of trading is when you run your legitimate back test and you're happy with it, try to just walk away and accept the profits and don't dig too deep don't get in there and look at trades that, boy, I could probably improve this month or this year or this particular trade by a little tweak and a little optimization here. That's really what's so hard for traders is accept the good and the bad and just be happy that, you know what, at the end of the day, the sample size is large. I have a good strategy. It wins in the end, although you know, you and I have talked about this, that all really successful managers really underperform on a shocking amount of the time, their peers, only to reemerge later as being one of the top managers. So you have to keep that long-term perspective. But I'll tell you, 
I'm not in any mood to recommend classic loose pants trend following right now. <laughs> no, but you know, it's quite interesting you mentioned Mark. And actually, as I said in my intro, Mark made a comment um, uh, last week that I thought was really interesting. I'd never thought about it in this way. I think both, I mean, both you and I, but I think a lot of people listening to us today knows uh, from previous conversations that there's no doubt that narratives are very important in terms of influencing how markets behave and how they move and so on and so forth. And Mark made this very simple, very elegant um, comment last week that goes to your point just before where he said, well, you know, trend following works because we live in this binary world, right? We're either in a bull, you know, we're either in a boom economy or we are in recession, right? There's nothing in between, right? Or the Fed is either dovish or they're hawkish, right? There's nothing in between. Um, and, um, and, and as you said, when you talked about the bonds and how they reversed and it was, you know, it's been pretty hairy. I mean, that's definitely also where we've lost most of, if not all of the, the money this month, it's like the markets the last week or so have decided, oh yeah, um, long-term rates are, and, and short-term rates, they're not going to go much higher than this. And we're kind of in a recession, so they're going to go down. The Fed is going to pivot and we're going back to where we were six months ago, even though none of the issues we have around the world has been resolved, right? But we've just decided that. And 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 so to some extent, this is why trend following works, because we live in this binary world, but it's also why we have these vicious reversals when that change in narrative initially happens against the trends we're in, at least. Yeah, it's kind of uh, comforting to some degree that... Um the world is not dominated by trend followers, <laughs> to say the least. Uh, people are, it's irresistible to, to uh, not pounce on these low prices. I don't care what market it is. They, it's, it's uh, I mean, there was one day last week or this week where the dollar was down, I mean, one ATR, one and a half. And then Twitter was, well, the dollar has turned. I was like, seriously? <laughs> I mean, we're a day and a half from all new highs. So it is just, uh, yeah, and uh, or taking profits off the table. Systematic, long-term, sticking with rules, going with the trend, trading lots of markets. This does not dominate uh, the investment horizon. Everyone is doing so much, many different things, nothing too similar to us. Um, sitting there and letting these markets reverse against the major trend and doing nothing, this, to some people, just smacks of malpractice and uh, and intolerant could not tolerate such a thing. So, anyways, I guess I feel better if I'm in the minority. Um, so that's the, my only positive sure. takeaway. <laughs> so we talked about the fixed income markets, definitely a difficult sector. We talked about the grains, definitely a difficult uh, sector. We talked about energy. Also, uh, a challenging sector. I'm, what I'm very curious about is actually your equities, because you do something that uh, we don't, and I don't know that many people who do, namely single equities, and then on the short side, you do the indexes. How have your experience, uh, or how have the experience of the models, I should say, handled this sort of uh, the first seven months of the year, if we expanded a little bit further, um, because... Obviously, single stocks will not necessarily uh, behave as if you were just trading long-short uh, indices. It hasn't done too bad. I definitely have some long equities, uh, maybe two-thirds 
long and uh, the amount that I'm short of the indices. And the indices are all pretty much profitable. They've had a bad week or so, but <clears throat> they're still profitable. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I've, I focus on diversification first and foremost in choosing the equities. And I've got a really diversified portfolio, but not necessarily. I certainly haven't, haven't picked overwhelmingly uh, good stocks that are uh, pr- you know, continuing into an uptrend. So some of my stocks uh, were heavily influenced by the commodity markets. You know, I have the potato, uh, the French fry, ma- the French fry maker, the egg, yeah, egg yeah, people, yeah. all kinds of commodity related equities, and uh, they've done some have done poorly, and, and I've gotten out with losses. And so it's just not a, uh, it's more diversification on that on the long side than on the short side. Most of the indices around the world are on the defensive, and I'm short most of them. So hasn't been a huge money maker, but um, you know, you sit there and some days before the past couple weeks or so, you're like, oh man, I have on too many long stocks because these indices are getting crushed. And then a few days later, you're like, oh crap, I don't have enough long equities because the indices are now all rallying. <laughs> so you can't play around that too much and cheat and optimize and do anything discretionary. You have to play it straight and hope you get some sort of balance. Um, you know, it just... You could get really think your thinking gets one way, and you're a hundred percent sure we're going to have a big bear market. Then you switch. We're pretty sure that we're we're probably not going to have a bear market, but the system just does its thing, and that's really what's so fortunate is that you're not drug into this and uh, changing your positions in your mind all the time based upon emotions. So I'm I'm okay. I'm happy with those positions, but I'm definitely prepared that they too will rally fiercely, and I'll have another drawdown because of the stock indices. Yeah, well, time will tell. Uh, the good news is that uh, none of us really know. Um, and actually, when you look at, um, you know, the B Top 50 index, I think actually it's been up every single month so far this year, except for July. So you and I know both pretty well that that is unusual to have such a long run of positive months. So we were kind of due for a bit of a correction and, Okay, so we had it in July. So I guess the that's just the way it, it turned out in, in 2022. Now, let's, um, we've got some pretty interesting topics that I really want to get to. Um, we got three short questions that uh, maybe we could just deal with uh, before we get to the, uh, the topics. And so thanks for sending those questions in to Michael, Caleb, and Adam. So a quick one um, that's actually specifically for you, um, uh, Jerry. Uh, Michael writes, could Jerry say a few words about how he enters a new trade after he has just exited his first trade? Is it true that Jerry may end up repeating the same trade several times in a row, even if he's getting stopped out on each of them? Or does he have any rule that prevents him from, from that prevents that from happening. So do you just enter whatever signal you get? There's no rule saying, well, if I had three losers in a row, I'm going to take the fourth one. Or, so on the entry, the first question, when we enter, it's on a breakout. Plus we have a, a filter that um, tries to measure how bad the market has been. So if it's three losers in a row, okay. the filter is going to get us in a bit quicker. And if so, we do the opposite. So if we have three losers in a row, we're more eager 
See how perverse that is and crazy that is. I was just going to say you're going to have you're going to be significantly eager in cocoa at this. Well, I wanted to mention cocoa because uh, I need to give you a cocoa update uh, frequently because okay, I read of this famous trader Aspect. You know Aspect. I like those guys. They're very of course pretty talented. Okay, I'm a fan, and they mentioned in one of their podcasts or newsletter, blah blah blah. We're short cocoa, and I was so happy that I'm not the only person trading this market that never makes money. Because look, a good trend follower puts it in there for diversification purposes and pays no mind how the back test in that particular market went. And uh, so I'm banging my head up against, against the wall with cocoa. I'm short a lot of cocoa for me. And we finally got some really good down moves this week. So I was very happy about that. So I see how low Fantastic. the bar is. It just has to show a couple right. of down days, and I'm happy. I'm sure it'll turn into another loss. But uh, yeah, you just that's one of the first lessons I learned with turtle trading was uh, do not even think about not getting right back into that trade. I think I asked Rich one time, what's the biggest mistake we'll make as traders? And his response was not getting back in. Uh, so much talk about buying uh, waiting for the market to break a little bit before you buy, or in this nuance of when you should get in and can you try to avoid this little small loss. Misplaced uh, concerns, the small loss is is your protection. So just go ahead and put that thing on as soon as your entry criteria are hit. So uh, yeah, I like this whole idea of speed up the trade a little bit or slow it down a little bit, depending upon how bad the market has been. If it's been a bad, choppy market, be more eager to get in qu- a bit quicker. So uh, that's how yeah. that's how I do it. Yeah, no, I like I like the twist. I was not aware of it, but I like it. All right, quick question from Caleb, um, an easy one I think to answer here to help out with. Caleb has a question about using the continuous or back uh, back adjusted futures contracts that that we would use in our systems. Uh, he says, I, I use TradeStation, which uses front month contracts rolled the day when the volume of the next contract exceeds the current one, and then adjust previous contracts accordingly. I think that's a perfectly normal uh, way of doing it. But then he says, as you can imagine, it generates a very different result from trend following methods than an ETF or a CFD of the same commodity as the continuous contract. For example, a 120-day fo- um, trend following breakout of gold performs twice as well on the and then it's the spot gold compa- uh, compared to what it does in TradeStation continuous contract. Are continuous contracts reliable for backtesting purposes? If so, how should they be set up? Let me just deal with that very quickly, Caleb. Um, I think the key thing is, and this is something we often say as a little bit of a slogan, and that is we test what we trade and we trade what we test. So we tr- there's a reason why we use futures data in our systems because we trade futures. We wouldn't necessarily use futures data and then trade CFDs or something else. I know you trade ETFs, Jerry, which we don't. So I don't actually know how to, whether there is a twist there, uh, if you do trade ETFs um, and how you would handle that kind of market or data, um, because it may not be a continuous contract. Or maybe it is actually, I guess it is. Yeah, I, I agree with what you said. I agree with the way he does the vol- the volatility role. That's fine. When people start quoting their backtest results, a lot of this can depend upon their system. So I can't comment on, I, I'm 100% sure that um, 
if I was to trade a gold future and a gold ETF, I would one would not be profitable and the other would be profitable. I'm sure of that. What's some of the ETFs? Uh, also, another caveat is some of the ETFs contain futures. Okay, so soybeans and corn ETFs they contain. Okay, so there's nothing there. Crude same way. But what happens is uh, this is a little trick that. In the futures markets, the leverage cost, the interest rate cost of borrowing that money is embedded in the contract. And for, if you have to have, I trade a lot of markets and I use leverage across the board, even on my ETFs. And so that cost is not inside of the price data series. So you could pretend that it's not costing you anything where gold is telling you up front, this is what it's going to cost you to trade gold futures. Um, the ETFs um, that that accounting for that leverage is in a separate place of, on your statement. It's not in the market itself. So, and of course, the uh, amazing example of this is uh, I remember back a couple six months or a year ago, somebody on Twitter talked about how much money you could make in the Turkey dollar being short the Turkey dollar. It was just it's been a trend for the twenty years. And then Moritz mentioned, uh, you have to figure in the interest that you're charged to take on that position. And it looks much more like the Turkey futures, which um, looks quite a bit different than the dollar Turkey FX chart. So there's no free lunch in these markets. And there's no, uh saying you can't get ripped off by a broker or pay too much in, in interest and in, uh, fees. But I think um, adding a few ETFs to your futures is perfectly fine. I like there's a I, I trade the tips ETF, uh, muni bonds, uh, junk bonds. So I get a little a bit of diversification in those uh, fixed income ETFs. Yeah, no, that's a good insight. And yeah, actually, it is pretty transparent nowadays, especially if you operate in the futures world, um, how how these all fits together and costs. So let's move on to the last question from Adam, and then we'll move on to uh, some topics. Um, Adam writes, and this is the first question, is about uh, stop losses. Adam asks, with regards to stop losses, do you and your co-host typically exit a trade only once the price has closed below, if you're long, the stop loss price? So that is adopting an end-of-day signal, so to speak, or uh, do you enter your stop loss order into the market and then exit intraday if it gets hit during the day or breached during the day? Do the back test suggest one method is better than another? I can see pros and cons to both ways and wanted to get your thoughts. But my thought on that actually, uh, Jerry, interestingly enough, um, and I, um, uh, we know obviously many people in this industry and my recollection is I've certainly met people along the way where they actually don't even get in or out and the day of the signal. They might wait a day or wait two days or whatever. So I actually don't think if you're a long-term trend follower, Adam, that it makes a huge difference uh, whether you uh, get your stop done intraday or you just do it at the open uh, after it's closed through your stop. Um, but you can test this. I mean, it's not difficult to do and you can decide which one you prefer. So... Yeah, that's kind of one. The other question that uh, Adam has, and then I'd love to hear your thoughts, uh, Jerry. If adopting the end-of-day stop-loss signals, how would you protect yourself from a significant abnormal one-off event? Would you say an intraday stop-loss order significantly below, et cetera, et cetera? Okay, so I think that actually is an interesting question. And, and maybe for that reason, if you're able to, I would personally probably prefer 
to do it intraday. Just put your stop in. Um, if you're a long-term trend follower, it's going to be super easy to do anyways. Um, most of the days, you're not going to have many orders to uh, to worry about. So anyway, that's my kind of inclination. Jerry, anything you want to add to that? These are all issues I've tackled. And uh, we switched from intraday to close. And we did the back test. And the close made a bit more. Close below the price was a bit better. I think it's random. I don't I don't trust that back test. It's certainly more risky. He brings up the idea of what if it's way, way through, what are you going to do? And we saw a dramatic example of that uh, 2020 when the markets were so violent in February and uh, waiting to the close. Whoa, whoa, incredibly different. Now, I think what you, if you look at enough data like we did 30, 40 years, it all washes out. It's the same, basically. However, it's very discomforting to uh, – you're losing money in the markets and you're losing money because you're waiting to the end of the day. And so it is a bit to take. Uh, we have a rule which uh, if it goes a certain distance below our stop, we will maybe do half or do something. And that's not really a great rule because – you're not handling the trade consistently. And that's the really the bottom line. Whatever method you choose, stick with it. Don't change. Be consistent. Um, I, I trade 200 markets. They're all really small. So if I have a couple that really go through that stop on the close and I still, uh, during the day, and I don't do it to the close, probably not going to kill me so much. But um, the most important lesson is don't freak out. Be consistent. Do half and half, or you know, it, be a, just be brutally consistent and do it the same way all the time, and you'll get those results in the back test. Which is, it really doesn't matter how you do it. Yeah, no, completely agree with that. That's great insights. All right, final question, um, and that's about equity. So this is probably more in your lane, uh, Jerry. My current portfolio includes a significant allocation towards long equities. In, a, in allocating a portion towards a trend-following strategy, is it reasonable to exclude long equity signals in the trend-following component and only trade the equities on the short side? The idea here being that I get enough long exposure through the rest of my portfolio. Or B given the long bias of equities and the historical limited contribution of short equities to overall trend-following performance, would it be reasonable to exclude equities altogether from the trend-following universe? Your thoughts would be much appreciated. Um, oh, you know what I'm going to say. Let's exclude the long stocks and just trade uh, trend-following, diversify trend-following, and just trade those stocks using... Yeah, yeah you know, I think it's better to um, to trade... a stocks long and short and have this uh, really good performance and good portfolio of your CTA trend following. And then if you think you have too much stocks on sometimes because the CTA trend following is long and you're long in your other account as well, then I honestly, I would cut back on the long only because I, I prefer the capital protection and the way that trend turns that long only into something that I can live with a bit better. Um, even though it doesn't look like it recently, because we've had a lot of these V bottoms, um, you know, it's in the long run, you'll be much more happy with your equity trading if it's done with trend and maybe 10 or 20% long only. Great stuff. 
Well, we're going to move on to um, to your um, sort of topics. Uh, and again, I don't know exactly where you want to go with this, so that's going to make it even more exciting. And then I've got a one particular topic I wanted to discuss with you uh, towards the end. And so you can make them as long as as short uh, in terms of your answers. But the first one, um, and these comes from some comments you've made on Twitter. Um, so um, so people can go and find them if they want. But anyways, you have one here. Oh, actually, there's one topic that I completely uh, um, missed here because it was so interesting and it's not a tweet. You said, CTAs focus too much on diversification and correlation. I improved my strategy recently by reducing diversification on purpose and by design. I don't want to miss that one. What's that all about, Jim? Well, you know, you let me uh, make these outrageous remarks and you go right for them. And so thank you for that. I appreciate it because that's all I try to do is shock you and shock the listeners. Uh, so, you know, I've been really, and I've talked about this before, but for some reason I think it's a good thing to bring up again. Uh, you know, I really uh, have been very impacted by Rich reminding me of what my job is. And it's it's not diversification, even though I appreciate it. I uh, but it's really hunting these outliers, and I'm, and I, and so I think I'm more in favor of accidental diversification. I have it, but I didn't really do anything to get it except I trade all these markets, and I don't do anything else. Uh, fall goes up, I do nothing. Correlation goes up, I do nothing. I and I also kind of trade crude, heating oil, unleaded, Brent, and gas oil. That's all 90% correlated with each other. So I'm not doing a very good job with uh, maximizing my diversification, but I have it and it's there and whatever I get from it, I get, but I'm not doing anything other than uh, putting in a, putting all these markets in my portfolio for one purpose. And that is maybe one of them will have an outlier. Maybe it sounds unlikely crude West Texas will go up and Brent won't go up and Brent in uh, West Texas, we'll have this amazing outlier, and that's why I do it. And I just was looking through my system and my portfolio, and I noticed that I was paying homage to diversification. And I was like, get that out of there. I don't want that. And so what I had done is I had identified about 15 markets that were not correlated to anything, uh, lumber, nat gas, uh, emissions, palladium, uh, crap, I can't think of all of them. Um, but And so I had decided, it's about 15, oh, the, the softs, cotton, coffee, cocoa, sugar, juice, uh, cattle, maybe, hogs, maybe. And so it was about 15. And so what I had done is I had decided to trade those markets twice as large as everything else. So everything else had the same risk budget, except those 15 were like twice as large. And I think I'd mentioned this to you before, and you, I think your response was, I don't like that idea. And I was like, I don't care. You know, I'm going to do it. But then I got to thinking that Rich had put that into my head, and I was like really focused. And I'm like, you know, I'm not focused on outliers. I, am, I have this little tiny bit in my portfolio where I'm really saying, hey, I'm going to trade lumber twice as large because it's more diversified. And I'm trading all this fixed income, all this currencies and they're so correlated. Of course I can trade lumber twice as large. And um but I got it out of there. And I don't know if it's going to improve. Probably it's going to have 
very little meaningful impact on my performance, but psychologically and philosophically, you know, I want to be pure and doctrinaire and orthodox and classic. <laughs> so this is what drives me in, in my portfolio and arguing with you and Rich and Rob and everyone. So um, I, I cleansed myself of any pretense of caring about diversification. And that's the first thing I did. And I'm interested in your comment. Well, I, I'm glad that it, I mean, it, better late than never, right? Uh, so, uh, <laughs> but no, I mean, th the thing is, and what I like is what you said at the, towards the end is that we, in many ways, want to keep it simple, uh, not trying to second guess, you know, what should happen. And every time we start, as you said, I want to trade these markets more than others, et cetera, et cetera. We're putting in some kind of bias in our systems towards, oh, I think this is going to happen and this is going to improve my performance. But the reality is we don't know. And this is the whole reason why we, we use trend following in the first place. So I, I kind of like the idea of just treating everything equal. But if you were to ask me, I would say, oh, I'm not expecting um, lumber to be better or palladium or uh, iron ore or emissions, I'm just saying that it's going to smooth things out a bit, you know, uh, and I can I can do that. If I'm willing to trade Brent and crude, um, why not trade lumber a little bit larger? So, uh, but once again, I was totally looking at it from a portfolio volatility point of view, which I just wanted to have no pretense of, of caring about that idea. And so much of the industry is vol managing. And and Rich would say, you don't know what's going to happen when you vol management. And they say, well, we don't care. It's risk level. We want the risk to be low. We want it to be normal. We want it to treat it, uh, I think you used the word fair, fairly a few weeks ago. And the correlation management, a lot of the CTAs, the larger ones, they're highly into the correlation management as well uh, because of diversification, risk, bumpiness, lumpiness of our returns. And so I too had sort of fallen into that and wasn't a pure outlier hunter. And so that's why I got rid of it. So, um, you know, sometimes I hear uh, people give me, they'll say, I don't really like what you do. I don't, I don't agree with how you do things. And I'm like, uh, okay, well, I, I'm going to keep doing it. And then someone will come along and say the same thing, but for an entirely different reason. And my brain will go, ah, you're right. You're right. So it matters the reason. You know, and Rich was hammering into my head, we're only on this planet for one reason, and that is to hunt these outliers. And I was like, oh, I got to dig deep in my thinking and my process to make sure that that's what I'm actually doing. And so then my second idea was um, I'm going to trade a lot more stocks as well. And I'm going to trade them because I don't care if I trade too many. I don't care if it, I become more stock heavy and I'm more correlated with equities, but there I can add another hundred markets, all equities. I'll try my best to have them diversified, but some of them will have a outlier move. And I've picked up another hundred markets. And I was even quoted as saying recently, I don't want my stocks to have more stocks than I have commodities. So I have like 60 commodities. I'm only going to trade 60 equities. But once again, why? Because I don't want to become overly equity because I'll be more correlated to equities. And 
once again, that's this diversification thing. Screw that. Uh, trade 100 equities because you'll pick up a Tesla, Moderna, these 500 ATR moves, which is what we're for. We're not for crisis alpha, for adding me into your portfolio to have more diversification, to be different than equities. None of those things. We're here for one reason. Find those outliers, put those markets in there, and I'm very happy to be transitioning out of CTA land, managed futures land. I reject all of those um, <clears throat> traditional ways of selling the product and explaining it to people. It's just trend following and 300 markets. And if 150 are stocks, who cares? I'm on the hunt for Tesla, Moderna, and these 500 ATR moves, not uh, to have a portfolio that is smooth, uh, diversified necessarily. And so that's my next big move is to go even deeper into uh, more hopefully different different strategies of different types of stocks. I'm not trying to screw myself and harm myself and give myself more to, more uh, correlation, but I may end up doing that, but I'm really just trying to balance it off between finding more outliers. No, I mean... Th- Interesting concept, interesting idea. Obviously, it'll be very um, interesting to follow that uh, change. But just for me to fully understand it, so if you're full risk budget, everything it was fully invested, now with 150 stocks, um, was it 150 stocks now you're up to? I'm going to go to uh-huh. 150. It's like uh, 50 now, so I'm yeah. going to go to another 100 stocks. Okay. Okay, so so half your total risk budget could potentially right. be in equities That's at that right. stage. Okay, okay, very interesting. I'm glad I didn't miss that uh, little topic. You have sneaked in among your tweets. Now we have it on record. So uh, good. All right. Well, then it's very apropos, I guess, the first tweet because it reads: risk equity risk concentration in almost all portfolios is extremely common and could be improved on by. Uh, could be improved upon, but it is not so easy because it's really is the risk that is easiest bear to convince conventionality. Is yeah. that what the word yeah. is? Only equities are forgiven that bad decade, nothing else. I completely butchered that um, tweet. I'm sorry. It's the same old story, you know, about how if CTAs have a 10% drawdown, it's the end of the world and the rest of the if stocks ten uh, percent drawdown, everyone's in the same boat virtually, and it's a great buying opportunity to get uh, equities cheaper. So, yeah, I think um, so. It may end up being really a lot better for me because uh, to become more known as a, more of a stock manager with a few commodities, currencies, and bonds. But um, from a marketing and asset raising point of view, and then of course it's a world of difference wrapping your stocks around trend following versus buy and hold or more value or fundamental other ways that people own equities. So um, that makes all the difference in the world uh, if you're trend following these markets. And of course, it's a, the downside is these V bottoms and things like that, where uh, the only thing that works really well in some of those periods is just buy and hold and trend following doesn't work well at all. And another thing too that really bothered me was I don't I'm going to do all I can to not go another have another 10 year period where I I totally blame CTAs and myself for not all this money spent on research 
and uh, backtesting and PhDs and scientists. We need to do something to where if stocks are the only game in town, and that's where the big trends are for the next 10 years, uh, and we go right back to that same situation and CTAs are having to make these excuses and apologize for not making money, uh, I don't want that to happen again. And I think this is another good reason because um, I'll get a really good pop you know, from being having a lot of stocks, uh, if if that really and, and and another thing I wanted to contrast that this is uh, much different than what Eric does with these and these other managers with permanent long positions on uh, in equities uh, combined with their managed futures program. I will never do that. I'm uh, it's for me it's just uh, intolerable to have positions in your portfolio that are not traded with trend following. And that's just a given, and it's something I would never do. It's too risky. I'm not going to have half my position in stocks and uh, cross my fingers that it's going to go up over time and believe into this equity premium and all this nonsense that they espouse. Uh, so, yeah, putting more stocks, more diver- especially you know if you have a way of tilting the odds in your favor that some of them will truly be different and diversified with with the trend following wrapped around them. That's a whole different ballgame. And you know, Niels, another thing you've mentioned before, and I, and I agree with totally, is how devastating it is when these mark, when the stock market has these big sell-offs and you have um, everything goes to a correlation of one, and it's horrible. And But we saw the same thing happen in 2020, where all the currencies went down, all the bonds went down, all the commodities went down, the stocks went down. Everything long, uh, all the longs got crushed. So it's not just isolated into the stocks. Um, you know, we're getting crushed now because we're all, we're short all these bond futures with no longs whatsoever. So this is the major problem. Um, and the best sector in that regard now is the stock sector because it's easy to find 50 longs and 50 shorts in the stock sector now unlike all the other sectors where it's a one-way trade. So these things go back and forth over time. A conservative risk budget overall is so important. And um, trying to find, in this case, equities that are substantially different, some are in uptrends, some are in long uh, downtrends, is uh, part of the whole process. And so it's not just throwing it together without a lot of work and a lot of analysis. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, part of our journey in this space, and this is why we learn from having these uh, conversations with each other, is that we, um, you know, we evolve uh, our thinking, our ideas, our models at the end of the day. And, and, and we are, you know, even after three or four decades of doing this, we're still students of trend following to some degree. And, uh, and that's what makes it fun to uh, get up every morning. It's not necessarily going to be the same day. Um, because we come up with a new idea and a new approach. So, yeah, good for you. All right, so now we are into a tweet that relates to a conversation um, that uh, uh, Antti Ilmanen, who was a recent guest also on the TTU podcast, that he had uh, on the Masters in Business podcast. And you tweeted, it's a cliche, but diversification is pretty close to a free launch, and it's a wonderful A to improving portfolios. It's easier to improve risk-adjusted returns through good diversification than by getting greater insights in one particular strategy. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, this just goes back to the core and heart of what I believe about trend following, that 
trying to improve the sort of classic systems with um, fall management or uh, correlation management and things like that is so fraught with problems. Uh, you have to be super diligent and smart in doing that because you're hammering on that sample size and trying to figure out how wobbly and how, how much you can trust the system. And like adding more markets is doesn't have any impact on uh, the robustness of the system whatsoever. It makes it better. It make, you can take smaller bets, hit more outliers, all the things we talk about. So here's a guy from the outside. Well, I guess he's in, in AQR. I just love reading Howard Marks or this gentleman and others, mm-hmm. Morgan Housel, outside of the CTA industry, who talk about diversification, outliers, um, and things like that, that back up uh, you know what we believe and say it in a different way that's uh, kind of fun to to read or listen to so yeah i'm a i'm a big fan of i think it's much more safe and profitable to find 300 markets to trend follow than 50 with a with this uh, fancy systematic approach uh so yeah that is definitely uh, something that i say all the time so sorry yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, that's cool. Now, the next uh, tweet and topic actually goes to something that um, I touched on in the beginning in the introduction. This is this thing about um, that now people have kind of declared inflation for almost coming to an end and it's going to be all fine. And you you tweet something from a post called The Humbling Process of Inflation. And you write, in July 1972, it appeared as if inflation was coming down. Then another rally started that ended in November 1974 from 3% to 12%. By November 1976, the CPI had dropped to 5.5% and it appeared as if the worst was over. Another rally started to new highs by February 1980. Inflation was at 14%. And I think, interestingly enough, not that we want to go into any fundamental discussion about what's going to happen in the future, but I think that something that came to my attention recently is this difference between predictable and unpredictable inflation because we all always talk about inflation as being just inflation but uh, I've certainly heard some much uh, smarter people than myself talk about the difference and this time around it could be that we're into this unpredictable inflation as this article is alluding to this is what happened back in the 70s and uh, it is much harder to deal with um, in the real economy. Um, But I actually think it could be much better for trend followers to deal with (laughs) because it's going to lead to some, yeah, painful months like July, but it's also going to lead to some amazing periods like the first half of 2022. Yeah, I'm, you know, I grew up in the 70s and I thought I I didn't remember all this. Uh, This is, uh, was pretty amazing. I got this from my friend, Michael Harris, and uh, these are his numbers, and I linked to his article. And it just goes to show that sometimes, you know, when we're in these trades, it becomes so obvious that we're wrong. You know, just so obvious. You can't, you cannot still be long commodities. You cannot still be short all those bonds. Come on. Did you hear what's happening in the world this week? And yet, this is why we win, because we have a systematic approach. We don't allow this noise and these emotions to influence us. And there's evidence just look at history, uh, that people get it wrong and they get go, going one way and they reverse and they get slammed that way and have to go back the other way. So 
uh, it was good to sort of see in history that you couldn't predict in the 70s, you can't predict now, and to have these approaches that just rely upon price. And, um, you know, unfortunately, they have to allow for a significant amount of uncomfortable uh, volatility against the major trend. And that seems to be what works, according to rigorous, robust backtest. So it's that's what you, you know, when you have these periods like July, you, you pull out your back test and you like sleep with it and look at it and ask it. <laughs> You're still correct, right? You know, I had just, this is so ironic. I mean, probably before most of this carnage happened, I had just gotten a call from my research guy and he said, I used, I incorporated all the data through June, updated our models. Nothing is better. This classic approach, it cannot be beat. And then all hell broke loose. And I'm like, see, there you go. You're tempting the markets. You're tempting the, the gods of the markets. Like, so disheartening. I'm so superstitious. <laughs> you should ask Mike to update the backtest and create and save it as a screen save on your on your laptop every day. So whenever you whatever you do, you open up your your Mac and you see your your backtest in the background. That will give you uh, comfort. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, the next uh, the next one is an article from Bloomberg uh, where they uh, it's an article about two, f- I guess, famous, at least one of them is more maybe famous than the other one, uh, Said Haider, um, who many people may know. Um, I don't think he's that famous, but funnily enough, I used to work in the same office as him uh, when I lived in London. And then Crispin O'Day, who's, I guess, pretty well known in, in, in Europe. But both of them are macro managers. And I think I don't know about Haydar, but but certainly uh, Crispin had quite a rough time a few years back, and now they've come back uh, with massive performance in the first half of 2022. And you write in your tweet, there will be more upside surprises, both in terms of what the peak in inflation turns out to be, as well as the length uh, of the rate hiking cycle. You can take your chances uh, with your sports cars. I think my tractor will be picking you out of the dishes. <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. It was reminding me of something you yeah. said many times, and I've tweeted this as well. Uh, people just, they forgot about how crazy things can get and how they can be surprised. And oh, yeah. uh, they look back yeah. at, here's here's the guardrails. You can do that, and that's the best case, and this is the worst case. This is, we're within this these ranges. And you point out, as does this, like, no, you don't know what the ranges could be. They could be a lot different than you've seen historically or that you've seen recently because everyone's focused on recent. So I, I felt like the sports cars, these are these people who fast systems trying to get in, get out, buy the lows, be very discretionary or very quick to their trading. And all of us slow tractors, you know, we were very slow, but when you're in the ditch, we're going to eventually pass you. So I, I was just trying to, I think... Because the quote included picking uh, tractors picking out sports cars from ditches. That's why I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah, no, it's a good one. Good one. Now we are on to uh, one of uh, both our favorite um, people uh, in terms of writing, and that's Morgan Housel. And the quote is, I have no idea how to find the perfect balance between internal and external benchmarks. There's a strong natural desire for internal measures, being independent, following your quick habits, and doing what you want. That's what people actually want. So I have not read his article, by the way. So Yeah, this reminds me 
a bit of the Oak Tree Memo as well. I don't know if you saw Howard Marks' Oak Tree Memo this week. Yep. And yeah. I was yeah, part of it is yeah. he says in there, like Morgan, um, embrace being different. Embrace embrace uh, being a contrarian and doing different things and being criticized. Do you have the guts and the stamina to withstand uh, you know, some temporary underperformance where people are wondering why the hell you're doing what you're doing? And just embrace... Uh, doing your own thing and being independent mm. and doing what you want to do. And I, you know, this is sort of what drives me, you know, like quit trying to be like everyone else. I have a brain, I have a vision. I have what I want to do. It's I've already laid it out uh, a few minutes ago and um, I'm going to wake up every morning being very, very happy. And I think that's what, what we need to make is our bottom line, not comparing ourselves to, external people and how they're doing and uh but being more willing to love ourselves and live with ourselves and pursue what we want to pursue and I'm I'm fortunate to be able to do that because I don't have to have a regular job and if this idea that I have of trading more equities um doesn't pan out I'll just like uh, quietly switch and not tell anyone and uh my tail between my legs and uh, go back to seeing more of a virtue and how it is to to trade uh, equally across all the sectors. Yeah, I mean, I I really like the the topic that uh, that Morgan brings up here and that you um, that you tweeted about because I think this is becoming even harder in in today's world with all this social media and people being compared to uh, this, that, and the other. And so, being our true self, being authentic, is something I really appreciate. But I also know that it's really hard to to be. Um, and so for you to come on uh, like today and talk about the changes you're making because this is what you want and the fact that you don't want to be necessarily in a box uh, of what people expect you to be, uh, I think is incredibly refreshing and I salute you for that because I think that we should we should all do more of that, um, so to speak. Uh, I mean, I can try to be as much as myself as, as I can by doing these podcasts, but at the end of the day, I also know deep down in my little brain that I am influenced by what other people are doing on their podcasts and how they do this, so maybe I shouldn't be too too authentic. But, you know, from time to time, I think you're, you're, I think it's a good thing to, uh, to step outside the, uh, the norm and, and just be true to yourself. So applaud you for that. Final tweet, and then I have one more topic I want to discuss with you and pick your brain on, and that is you write here, and I, I think this might be just your own. Um, I don't see any article linked to it. Trend following's implicit assumption is that non-normal world is uncapped. Fat tails will generate outside returns much greater than anything likely in a normal world. Accept and trade, brackets, hold the trend for these heavy tails. I guess it kind of summarizes what we've been talking about so far. Yeah, this is actually from an article uh, from Mark back in the beginning of the month. And I always want to just promote this whole concept of uncapping those fat tails without any sort of vol management or any sort of correlation management. And uh, this is where all the money is made. I did a Morgan Housel tweet yesterday saying basically the same thing, quoting... Uh, I'd heard this quote before from Buffett saying that if you take away my 10 best decisions, I didn't really make any money. For I, I've owned four to 500 stocks and all the profit came from 10 of them. So the whole world, whether we like it or not, 
uh, you're going to be impacted by these crazy moves that no one can see coming and no one can truly estimate that trend followers, at least historically, and a few of us continue to uh, make our bread and butter and um, then try to hold hold them down and control them to have more of a, a less of a lumpy and a less of a volatile situation is what most people try to do. But, uh, you know, thankfully there is still a place for more of a traditional and sort of people trying to maximize this crazy idea uh, because, number one, we don't have a lot of clients who are going to complain. And so doing, you know, and what you said earlier, like doing your own thing and being happy with yourself, it's as easy for me to say. But if I had $5 billion or $50 billion under management, you know, uh, maybe I would not, not be so uh, wild about trading another 100 stocks. Like, uh, wait a second, we bought you for you being a traditional CTA, what are you trying to do here? And so uh, it's easy for me to go out on a limb like this because it is pretty much uh, my assets and just a few family and friends. And so, but... Um, yeah, but but it's inspiring, right? A lot of people look up to you, Jerry, of course. And, and so it's inspiring to hear these uh, stories, these decisions that they wouldn't hear from some of the uh, big firms uh, in our industry. And so, and then people can choose uh, what am I going to be when I become, you know, further into my trend following journey. So I think it's, 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 it's super great. Now I wanted to pick your, I wouldn't say pick your brain. I want to hear your, your opinion about a topic that came to my attention this week uh, when I was out doing some walking, listening some, to some other great podcasts. And, and there's one guy that came up a few times uh, on various podcasts this week um, who's kind of in our space, but in a different way. Um, and that's Andrew Beer, who uh, were on a couple of different podcasts this week. And he's been, and one of them called him the Jack Bogle of hedge funds, because what they're really trying to do is to offer the returns of hedge funds and also offer the returns of CTAs, but at much, well, they say at much lower cost. I'll question that a little bit, but we'll, we'll come to that. So um, so essentially, they replicate the performance of hedge funds and CTAs. I think in the CTA space, as far as I can tell, um, but of course, I can't, uh, I'm not 100% sure, but as far as I can tell, they specifically target to replicate the SOCGEN CTA index. And then they, as they say, they want to offer that in a much cheaper version. And the way they do that is they look at the performance data that is published uh, publicly of the SOCGEN CTA index over a period of time. And then they re-engineer that um, with a portfolio of about 10 different futures contracts to get the quote-unquote closest correlation you know, within their portfolio to match that performance um, through some linear regression, I imagine, because their view is as long as you can just get the big themes or the big trades right, you can basically replicate the, the performance. Now, I guess one thing you could say um, off the bat is that that may be true, but maybe then um, you're not going to replicate any, if if some of the things you've talked about earlier today that you believe that it's really important to go for the outlier trades and that these outlier trades could happen in smaller markets, doesn't have to be in fixed income or currencies or, or equities for that matter, um, but it could be some of the smaller commodity markets. And then I, I imagine that they wouldn't necessarily be able to replicate that. So... So there's a couple of claims in some of the conversations that I've heard. One of the things Andrew mentions is that they have done some research that hedge, I think it's hedge funds in general, 
um, that 80% of the alpha is paid away in fees. So that's one of the claims they make. I, I don't know. Uh, I have no idea whether that's, you know, right or wrong. Um, he also describes the hedge fund, and these are his words. I'm not, I'm just trying to be objective about it and have a discussion about it. I think it's an interesting topic. Andrew describes the hedge fund industry as heads I win, tails you lose kind of industry. He talks about the 2 and 20 fee structure as if this is still what you would normally pay as standard in the hedge fund industry. He says that um, they, I mean, they, they, he, he says that they replicate the performance and they can do that and only charge 1%. Uh, I will say, though, that when I look at the prospectus, there's also some money being invested in a Cayman Island fund to host these futures. So I don't know if that, if that 1% actually includes the, the cost of running a Cayman fund. Um, if it does, it's very unclear, at least uh, to me. And they say that they will, they have the best sharp ratio in the time they've been doing this, and that is a result of the lower costs. Uh, he says that the biggest challenge for allocators today is the single manager risk or dispersion, because what a manager did last year is says nothing about what they do uh, in the future. And he also says, and I quote, as soon as you fall in love with a manager, he betrays you. Uh, he then goes on to talk about other uh, the, the other challenge, uh, which are the fees. And again, I'm pretty sure he talks about the CTA uh, product that they have. Uh, when he says that they started to, in, they say, he said that when they started to invest, the industry had been flat for four or five years. That could be true. I mean, certainly if they started their fund in 2019, uh, we we had a flat period for for CTAs uh, going into that uh, for sure, um, but then he mentions that we were up four or five percent per year during that period. To me, that implies, um, but I could be wrong, that they can save investors for four or five percent percent of fees every year, and I think that is a problem. If that's the if that's the the claim, I think that's a problematic statement because I don't think that there is that much fees in in CTAs anymore. And uh, and then finally, he says, you know, uh, that they they say that on their website, their reasonable fee structure ensures proper alignment with clients. But of course, uh, from my personal point of view, and, and of course, I'm biased because of the firm I work for. We 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 have a completely different uh, view on this. But I think if you only charge a management fee, I don't see any alignment. In fact, I see zero alignment uh, with the client because the only interest a firm like that would have is to grow the AUM. There's no incentive to improve your product, provide better performance. In, in, in fact, there's no incentive to provide any performance to the to the client. Um, now, I do understand that many mutual funds work like this and ETFs is management fee only. So I know it, this is not just for their product. So I fully understand it. I'm just saying that to claim that they are probably aligned by having a flat fee structure. I, I question that. I would say that if you were only performance fee based and only made money, if your client made money, then I would say you're aligned, but that is not the case. So I don't want to come across sounding critical. I think it's perfectly fine. And I'm sure Andrew will, um, and he's of course welcome to come and chat about these things. And they're not the only ones trying to replicate performance. So it's not about them per se, but it's just happened to be the, that that was the conversation I was listening to. Factor-based analysis is of course something that a lot of people have tried. It's been a theme for, for a while. What investors should be aware of, of course, as soon as you go into factor-based analysis, there is a time lag between when they can pick up changes in our positions and through 
performance data to when they can implement that. And actually, I think one of the, the, the downsides of this is the risk of missing out on some changes in the portfolios that we may have made um, that they don't pick up for a few weeks, and um, and 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 that that even that period could be quite critical if you think about what investors bought uh, or wanted out of that uh, exposure. So I just want to flag that that that's obviously uh, a thing. And then finally, and then I'll leave leave the floor to you, Jerry, to to uh, to uh, to give your views. Um, I mean, anytime you want to replicate an index, uh, essentially, what an index is an average, right? And 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 I don't know if you really, as an investor, want to be average um, at all, and let alone trying to replicate to to be average. I don't know if that's something that that investors should strive for. Frankly, I understand why some institutional investors will say, "Oh, we just want that factor exposure," but I would argue that. If a if if an institutional investor or, or for that matter an individual investor has something specific have a specific reason for why they would want to include CTAs in a portfolio and a trend follower specifically, I think it's better to try and understand what the manager is doing to see if they think that is a good fit and that they would deliver whatever kind of expected exposure slash return for for what the client uh, you know would expect and need it for. So those are my kind of initial thoughts. Uh, I'd love to hear your your views. Uh, and as I said, I'm, I'm really trying to do this in a... It's, it's a friendly discussion. It's not a criticism of Andrew or, or, or his firms. I know you also know him uh, on Twitter and, and, and sort of socially um, or social media-wise. Uh, so, so, but I also know you, you have... Been, you're, you've been out saying that, well, I don't necessarily agree with all these views. So... So let's have it. Um, so, so I'd love to hear your thoughts about this. Um, yeah, I like yeah. him, and I really enjoy all of his podcasts. He's super smart, and he a lot of good answers. He hasn't been questioned by classic trend followers or uh, people necessarily in the in our CTA space. And I told him, like, "Hey, I love you, dude, but we're going to have to have a discussion and go back and forth." I would be totally happy if. Classic trend following had half the money and replication had the other half. That'd be fine with me. I feel like maybe I'm more closer to um, to a more beta-like product. And I think that should be preferred. Uh, I know what, I can create you know, half a dozen trend following, one entry, one exit, one stop loss systems that I could tell everyone what, what it's doing. It's sh- shorter term, medium term, longer term, trading all the markets equally. And you know exactly what's going on. Your idea of, I'd like to understand what's actually happening. I mean, that's an understatement of the year. <laughs> yeah, you should understand and not just some sort of, well, we're replicating things. We have no clue what's going on. I was wondering, you know, would it be better to try to replicate their rules? So at least you could have your own rules. You could back test them. You could have confidence in them. You could apply them consistently. That's kind of a derivative of what he does. I'd prefer that. Um, I I use my fancy algorithms and regression to figure out what each of these CTAs do or as a group what they do. And then I'm just going to always prefer having those rules. Um, it's To me, it's like you can uh, invest in the S&P and you know exactly what the S&P is going to do. Or I have a fund over here where I don't know what the S&P, I haven't bothered to figure out what it actually does. I just replicate it. Well, I mean, I think you can get to where he wants to get, sort of a beta product, uh, low fees, 
by what I do. It's kind of what I do. And so, uh, and then if, you know, I'll just make a rule too. I'll always charge less. <laughs> so the business model may be a little weak if you're, um, if your edge in life is, I just have lower fees. Well, the next guy down the road, he'll have lower fees as well. And it'll be this race to the bottom. Um, and I also liked uh, something you mentioned before we went on air, which is how much, how many man hours have we put into all of this uh, dev- devising and designing these systems? And to think that you can come along and just replicate it. Um, and you know, another thing too, yeah. Well, I think my point was, yeah, my, my point and what you're referring to is that my, my point is, of course, that, yeah, they, they should be able to do it cheaper because we're the ones having all the de- research and development costs, right? They don't have any of that. So we do that. We do it for decades. And then they came along and say, well, we can just replicate what you do and we don't need to have a research staff or anything like that. So, of course, you could say, yeah, that explains you should do it cheaper. cheaper. But one of my thoughts on this, and, and this is not just about you know, what Andrew is doing, but just generally speaking about also this um, mutual fund, even in the usage space in Europe, where it's all about the cost, right? It's all about, well, I can get it 20 basis points lower. I mean, let's not forget that the best performing hedge fund in the world, Medallion, I mean, they charge 5 and 46, right? So cheaper is not always better. And I think there were quite a few CTAs that came along five, seven years ago where they said, yeah, we'll we'll offer you trend following cheaply, like 50 basis points flat. Many of those have actually closed. That did not pan out, um, even though it's a great story. It's a great sales pitch to say, oh yeah, it's cheap. We, it's easy. I mean, it's going, it, what, I guess what I, I my, my, if I have a bone of contention here is that it's, it makes it sound like what we do is so easy that you shouldn't have to pay for it. And I think that's wrong. I mean, there's a reason why Chesapeake has delivered double-digit returns or Dunn has delivered double-digit returns for 30, 40 years. It's because we're good at what we do, but it costs money to do what we do. So we can't do it for free. And 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 the other point that 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 I do take a, a little bit exception from is this notion that two and twenty is the norm. I don't think two and twenty is the norm at all in our industry. And in fact, I would go as far in saying that our usage fund, our, so the, the the fund that I work with, the, our usage fund is cheaper than Andrew's product. Just to throw it out there, it's so you know one percent is not the cheapest, you know. So, so I just think that, as you rightly say, I think it's great to have the debate. I think it's fantastic um, to to hear these conversations, but they also need to be questioned a little bit from our side because you can have the conversations with people who are not necessarily a CTA, and they may not necessarily then debate some of the points. So, of course, what I like about it is. Yeah, I would also much prefer that people had, rep, you know, exposure through replication than having no exposure. So it's a good thing, but we don't have to. We don't. Ha- it doesn't have to be at the expense of us saying we're too expensive. We don't deliver what we promise. You know, we betray you. Once you fall in love with us, you betray you. No, we don't. We do exactly what we've always done. And if you're a long-term investor with Chesapeake or with Don or with any of our friends in the industry, you would have had a really good experience. 
Yeah. Um, another thing, too, that I value very highly, and I'm sure I mentioned it a half a dozen times on this podcast, is being consistent. What are these managers doing? How mm-hmm. consistent are they? How good are their rules? Are they robust? I don't think it's, I don't think replication, if you're an institution, is um, necessarily a problem with your fiduciary duty to know what the hell you're doing. But I think you would need to look into each one of these managers and know who, which ones they are, feel comfortable with their philosophy, what they do, how they do it, in a broad general sense that they're willing to share. So then you can get comfortable with replicating it. Because look, you know, I don't want anybody replicating me because you know what they would find throughout my entire career? Uh, we had a problem with this period here, Jerry. We weren't able to replicate uh, your performance. And I was like, yeah, I was off the reservation. I wasn't following my rules like I should have. Uh, I started adding new markets. I was evolving good and bad. Uh, you know, things change with people. They uh, they change the way they do things, good or bad. And you need to dig a bit deeper. I think that's the the big lesson for me. I need to know are you robust? Are you committed to doing your systems? Are you consistent? Uh, and the late factor too, being late, a week late, a month late, man, I know in my performance, it would have been devastating to wait to the end of the month. We talked earlier about waiting to the end of the day <laughs> and the risk that posed. Yeah, right. So once again, replicating a classic trend follower who goes after outliers, he's not even attempting and it would be very difficult. Uh, replicating the traditional managed futures that does a lot of all targeting and correlation management, probably not as troubling in my mind because you could probably do that much easier. And I think he has. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, anyways, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll wrap up for today. Um, and, um, We'll do that speaking about the industry. And of course, these numbers are uh, a little bit out of date because we're recording on a Friday. And uh, I'm not sure that they even posted uh, yesterday's numbers, which were um, down for for the day, I'm sure, for CTAs, at least the ones I've noticed. So these numbers are kind of two days out of month end. But in any event, it is a down month. Uh, The Beta 50 Index um, is down 1.92% for the month, and it's still up 14 and a quarter for the year. SockGen CTA index, the one that they tried to replicate, down 1.4% for the month, up 19.45 for the year. SockGen trend index down 2.10, up 26.26 actually for the year. And the SockGen short-term trainers index down 34 basis points, but still up uh, about 11% for the year. My trend barometer is confirming all the anxiety that Jerry and I had about July because it's down to 18, which is extremely weak. Um, But that's what we have. MSCI World, on the other hand, is having a great month as of yesterday, up 6.43%, but still down 16% for the year. And the World Government Bond Index up 2.15%, the first up month in a long time. Um, so uh, good for those who hold bonds. And um, if you want to uh, send questions in for next week when Alan is joining, please do so. Uh, info at toptradersandplot.com is where you will have to email them. That's going to be it for Jerry and me for today. Um, thanks so much for listening. Until next time, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. 
And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.